You are listening to Myth Behaving, a podcast with a little bit of attitude on the literary world. Won't you come myth behave with us? Hello, hello, and welcome to Myth Behaving, everybody. This is episode number six, and we are recording on March 17th, so happy St. Patrick's Day to everyone. I'm Mary Wilson, and I'm joined by my co-host and producer, Carla Clifton. Hey, hey, Carla. How are you today? Hey, hey, hey. I'm wearing green shoes. Does that count? I have green eyes. Does that count? I'll let your green shoes count if my eyes count. Okay. That sounds good to me. All righty. Well, each myth-behaving show features a special guest from the literary world. It could be a writer, a publisher, an agent, an editor, or just anyone else connected with the world of publishing. And we also have several special segments throughout the show that are related to either reading or writing, but most of the time we've been focusing on writing lately. So so some writing tips or something like that. in the library of a myth behavior. And that means it's time for something from the library of the myth behavior, which, of course, is me. And today I'm recommending The Aylesford Skull, Tale of Langdon St. Ives by James P. Blaylock. This book, I loved it. This is an absolutely delightful book to read. It's steampunk, which I love. And I think I've made that clear in the past that I'm, I'm, I'm really into steampunk. But this book is so elegantly written and it's got everything. It's got all the little steampunk props. It's got uh, characters that are just to die for. I mean, there were times that I literally laughed out loud, which is really tough. Anybody who knows me, I don't like laugh out loud when I'm reading books very often, but this one made me read. So highly, highly, highly recommend this book. Again, that's by James P. Blaylock, and it's called The Aylesford Skull, Tale of of Langdon St. Ives. It's one of the St. Ives books, so fabulous book. Pick it up if you haven't read it. Please do, and there'll be a link on the website for the book. Well, as you all know, that must mean our special guest today is Jim Blaylock. Welcome to the show, Jim. We're so glad you joined us. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to join you. I'm not sure where you are, but uh, we're we're joining, you know, voices in a way. <laughs> Via the, the the magic of the internet and Skype. Right. We feel like we're in our own little little studio, but yeah, we are kind of scattered across the country today. We certainly are. Right. Well, I hope it's as nice there as it is here in Southern California. It's I don't know, seventy five degrees and sunny and wonderful. Sunny here in Southern Nevada. Carla, how's it over there in East Texas? Oh my gosh, it is beautiful. The wind is blowing, the sun is shining, and my husband's out there working like a dog in the garden. Uh, oh yeah, this time of year. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's what I've been doing most of the day, actually. Love those gardens. I I didn't. I I was um, getting things ready on the website. So yeah, busy busy at the computer. I didn't go outside. Shame on me. Anyway, Jim, we are absolutely thrilled to have you come with us today. It's very exciting for me because you've had so many books out over the years and because, you know, we do have the Philip K. Dick and Tim Powers connection going there. So it's it's always a, a pleasure to hook up with with former folks that I've I've known in the past. But I wanna I want to focus today a little bit on the steampunk because 
along with Tim, you're one of the founders of the steampunk genre. And this this latest book in the Langdon St. Ives series is carrying on that tradition, that steampunk tradition. Uh, do you feel that your writing in the series has changed from the early days back when you first started? And if so, how? Well, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. It, it has changed, I think, without a doubt. My very first... Um, Langdon St. Ives story, my first steampunk story, 10 years before the the term would actually be coined by K.W. Jeter. Um, at that time, I was I was crazy for P.G. Woodhouse, and I was trying to read through all of Robert Louis Stevenson. And it came into my mind to kind of do a mashup of Woodhouse and Stevenson. And so I, I borrowed some plot devices from Stevenson's uh, New Arabian Nights and The Dynamiter, and the language of that first story was um, highly goofy in a sort of P.G. Woodhouse way. Um, I'm not suggesting that I could write like Woodhouse, only that I attempted to, which is not at all the same thing. The, the effect came out pretty well, but, um, but that, it got that out of my system just a little bit, I think. And um, over the years, the style evolved and became more honest, I suppose I would say. I loved the style in in the Ellsford skull. It was just, it was elegant. You had the feeling that you were reading something, you know, from the Victorian era, but it never got stuffy. It never, you never got lost. It, it was modern, but not modern. <laughs> it well, was great. I am. <clears throat> thank you for saying that because it's, uh, it's, I don't, it doesn't, cost me a big effort to do that these days. But one of the things that's probably developed most um, over the, the last 30 or 35 years is my ability to to find that um, Victorian voice that's not, in fact, authentically Victorian, but fools the reader into thinking that it's Victorian. Um, it's sort of a long time coming, but that's one of the distinct differences between the writing today and, and the writing even in, in my early novels. Well, you did it brilliantly. You really Thank did. You. So, uh, good job. Good job on that. Of truth and misery. Of Truth and Mythery is a segment where we take a commonly held publishing or writing belief and examine whether it's true or just another myth. Now, Jim, I want you to feel free to jump right in on this one, okay? Okay. Authors do everything alone, and the entire writing and publishing process is done hidden away in a little room somewhere. Well, okay, I'll I'll start out by saying that that's more or less true for me. <laughs> I tend to hide myself away um, simply to, to um, have the quiet I need to focus or the solitude, I guess quiet isn't quite so important as a solitude. But once it leaves your hands, then it goes to a team, correct? <laughs> yes. And in fact, um, in fact, you've got me there actually before it leaves my hands and goes off to, to uh, a big team of people who work for a publishing company. Um, I very often foist it off on um, a trusted writer friend to get an opinion um, or foist off chapters on them, uh, which doesn't make it any kind of a collaboration, but 
these particular friends I, I trust so thoroughly that if they have an objection, I take it very seriously. Um, and so I, I sort of have these friendly, no-nonsense editors chiming in now and then along the way also. That's great. Now, see, I call those, I call those beta writers, beta readers, and I have, I have like seven of them. Yeah, I've got three that I can think of right offhand. That's awesome. Yeah. And then after it leaves your hands, though, and it, it goes out there, then all of a sudden it really is a team effort on, on the publishers and the – I mean, we do the writing alone. That that part is ours. But once we're done with that, it's – you've got the, the editor. I mean, I've got Carla who's – helping on one aspect and somebody else is helping on another, all my beta readers, and then the the publisher and the cover artist and the editors sure. <laughs> and then the formatters and then uh, whoever prints it from there. So it's it really is it's 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 kind of both where we are alone, but at the same time we're also part of a team to get the actual book all the way out there and into the reader's hands, I think. Yes, that's absolutely true. And we don't want to forget book designers who who do some very interesting things with, with, with the book before it comes out. I think um, every step of the way, the book changes for me also. Um, I've got one sense of the book when it's planned, but not written another sense that kind of evolves as it's written. I'm happiest with the book when I actually print it out and it's, then there's a big stack of paper because that's evidence that I've done my, my work. But um, but then that sort of ceases to be vital as soon as I see the the finished copy because so many people put you know put so much work into a into a book. Jim Tim told us that he was in, involved in the very very beginning of the steampunk genre, and we've touched on this a little bit. But would you take us back and and share your from your viewpoint that experience of creating that genre with us? Yeah, sure, I will. It's um actually. It's uh, one of my favorite parts now of, of my development as a writer. I think I started writing, I sold my first short story in 19, I wrote it and sold it in 1976-77 um, and followed that one up fairly quickly by, by the steampunk story that I was talking about that I was a sort of Stevensonian, Wodehousian thing. And at that time, Tim Powers and K.W. Jeter and I had been out of the university for a couple of years, I guess. And we were all living in Orange and Santa Ana, and we hung out together quite a bit. Tim and K.W. had actually sold books to Laser Books, which was edited by Roger Elwood. I was just starting to sell short stories. And all of us, for some reason or another, were hooked into writing historical fiction. Me, because I wanted to. K.W. because he had sold a, a novel to uh, Roger Elwood. And um, the same with Tim. And K.W. at that time had um, made us both read Henry Mayhew's London Labor and the London Poor, which is an absolutely wonderful research uh, book involving uh, all sorts of Victoriana. Um, real interesting picture of London. And essentially... In many afternoons, we simply um, wandered into O'Hara's Pub in downtown Orange and um, did what might be called research, you know, so that one's wife would come home from work and say, what'd you do today? And I'd say research. Um, I wouldn't mention that it was done in O'Hara's Pub. Uh, 
<laughs> um, and at, at the time, I remember there was one day that was pretty typical. And I don't mean to suggest we hung around the uh, bars every day. We didn't do that by any means. But one day that was pretty typical, um, KW had gone out to L.A. to meet with Roger Elwood um, at LAX. Elwood was blowing through town and he had two hours and having a layover. So KW dashed out there, parked the car, went in, they went to the bar and and um, ordered uh, a drink. And Tim and I wandered off to O'Hara's pub and we were sitting around waiting for KW to show up and finally came through the door and we were pretty excited because he got to meet his editor for the first time and and um, who knew how many books Roger Elwood would end up buying from the lot of us although he bought none from me, so there's that. But uh, KW finally returned and said that, that they'd gone to the bar and that Elwood had, um, had ordered a vanilla 500. And KW said, I'll have the same, thinking that that would be the cool thing to do. And it turned out to be milk and ice. And um, when KW came to O'Hara's and sat down, he pointed out that um, the drink had neither vanilla nor 500 in it which I thought was pretty funny and was typical of KW. <laughs> and on that very day, we were chatting about uh, science fiction and how much science one needs to know to write science fiction. And um, I was very anxious to write science fiction, although I knew no science at all. And so I voiced my opinion and KW in his typical way rolled his eyes and he said, he said, you know, Jim, if you decided to write a, a story about a black hole, you'd have your characters plug it with a fits all sizes cork. And um, I thought, wow, what a dynamite idea for a story. And so, <laughs> so I asked him if I could have it and he rolled his eyes again and said, knock yourself out. And so I, I came home that very afternoon and launched a story in which Langdon St. Ives and his man Hasbro blast off into outer space to plug a black hole through which aliens are, um, sneaking into our part of the, the galaxy and um, they end up plugging it with a gigantic fits all sizes cork on the end of a chain and, and making that story plausible was, was moderately difficult, but um, that was sort of typical, I guess, of what qualified as ideas um, that came out of those days in the, in the mid 1970s when we were all, ex-students, you know, waiting around to become something else. I love that story. That's a, that's a great story. Yeah, I, I do too. In fact, the, um, I sold the, the story to the short story that I, I wrote to um, Starwind Magazine, which at the time um, paid me $40 for it. And I was pretty excited to get $40 for a story. And then they went broke before they managed to publish it. And I've always wondered whether that $40 check was the, what, what, you know, took the company down or, uh, or just what, but it, then it took a, a little while again before the, the story actually saw print. It's time for myth print tips and tricks of the industry. All right, it's time for another one of our special segments. MythPrint includes a basic tip concerning writing, marketing, and anything else to do with the industry. Jim, do you have any tips about writing in the steampunk genre that you can share with our listeners? You know, I, I in fact, have 
a heap of tips, I suppose, locked away in my mind somewhere. One I think that I would, um, that seems to me to be very, very vital is that the last thing in the world I would ever suggest to any um, aspiring writer would be to write in a particular genre unless you, simply because it, it was popular at the time. And I know that steampunk is, is sort of writing high right at the moment. I don't think that's a good reason to write a steampunk story. Um, if, if anybody wants to write a steampunk story, it should be because they read heaps of steampunk and they've read other Victoriana and they just very much want to write a story in that genre. Um, so motivation um, to, to write a steampunk story has to be, I think, has to be honest. That would be my first suggestion. That's a very good suggestion, too. I, I like that one. Yeah. The other thing, I suppose, is to do as much research and reading as you can possibly do. Um, there's a, so much stuff out there that uh, you can spend uh, heaps of time doing it. I, th I think Tim Powers spends a year researching before he starts writing anything at all. Um, I'm not quite that dedicated, but, but I can spend six months and then continue to research while I'm while I'm writing the piece, it's important, I think, to get it right and not just to play with the, the goofy odds and ends of the steampunk, you know, the steampunk tropes, I guess you would say. Right. Well, turning to just writing in general, it's a process of, of so very many things. What do you love most about the process? What's your favorite part? My absolute favorite part of the process of writing is is when I've I'm far enough into a novel so that the characters have I, I'll borrow this phrase managed to stand up and cast their own shadows and they begin to seem to me like living people and um, which I know is is kind of goofy to say but um, but it's true and um, along those lines when I when I come up with a, a fresh character for a story. And um, that character begins to um, react in, in dialogue and in action in ways that surprise me just a little bit, which can happen when it's really flowing smoothly and, and a writer is really focused. And um, I'm aware that the characters are developing into um, authentic-seeming characters, I guess. And I discover that within a few pages uh, a character has has come from nothing to something I, I think that's my favorite part of writing um if that makes sense it, does. it makes total sense yeah it does it makes perfect sense and i as a reader enjoy watching those characters cast their shadows so to speak um as i'm reading it because they really become alive to me and I that that is a well written book in my opinion is when they that you actually believe it's a real character, so I totally understand that. Um, you've written so many books. Is there anything about the process that you don't like? Well, yeah, and it's actually the most necessary part of the process for me, and that's the the time that goes into figuring out what it what a book is going to entail. Um, I'll have a vague notion that I want to write a book or a, a character, perhaps um, a setting that uh, suggests a novel. 
And I can mess around taking notes and having these weird schizophrenic conversations with myself on the computer screen for six months before scenes begin to to develop in my mind and I start to get the idea that I can actually write the book. And I know from long experience that if I if I try to rush the process and simply start writing, that it's quite likely I'll simply hit a wall. And, um, and that's doubly frustrating because then you have to go back and do the work that you should have done in the first place, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I, I think that the reason that, that that work doesn't make me quite as happy as the actual writing, um, is simply because it seems like I'm making no progress. You know, if you're writing the book and you, you do, you write six or eight pages in a day, you can put the, you know, computer to sleep and feel as if you've earned your keep. But if you put in six hours and what you've got at the end of the day is a batch of notes that you're pretty sure are not going to lead you to any magic surprises, then it seems like the day has been wasted. But of course the day has not been wasted. Although I remind, when I remind myself of that, it still doesn't help. <laughs> uh Along those lines, you've mentioned research several times, and you, I, I know you're you're talking probably about research for the stories and the notes. But how much research are you doing at this point in time? Because you've been working in the genre for so long, how much are you doing specifically on the Victorian era? Um, I actually have read very, very widely um, factual books of various sorts. Um, that have to do with the Victorian era. And I've also read um, a great deal of Dickens and Conan Doyle, not that Conan Doyle was a Victorian when he was a writer um, and Stevenson and others of my favorite um, writers from that era. And so the, the sound of the language is something I pretty well got in a, in a sort of a mental picture of the era is, is something I've, I've got. Um, so my research is usually, plot oriented um in the aylesford skull for example it it became clear to me that there would be that, that i would have to read a little bit about early photography um for one reason or another and um it happened that i had a book called the i, I own a, a book called the pre-raphaelite camera which uh, i've always really liked and when i was mugging that up um that led me to other sources which led me to other sources um, one of which suggested that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle was uh, um, a very good early photographer. And um, that led me weirdly to literature on coal dust explosions for re reasons that I can't begin to explain right now. But I think people who read my novel will, will figure it out. So one thing kind of led to another. Uh, I ended up reading about Japanese magic mirrors and... Um, the London sewer system, and I found maps and Flickr photos and et cetera, et cetera. And um, so by the time I started writing, I had piles of this stuff in my mind. And I think I could, I ended up using about 5% of it because you can't put it all in. You just have to put enough in to, to simply provide the uh, color and the plausibility that you need, you know, in order to tell the story. What took the most time, though, and this is something that I, I hadn't anticipated, um, is that I really actively wanted to avoid anachronism and I wanted to avoid Americanisms. 
And um, I was dealing with uh, the language at a point where it was really very much in flux. Um, and consequently, on any given page, I might have swiveled around in my chair to check my, um, my dictionary to make sure that a, a word that I wanted to use meant exactly what I thought it meant and was of the correct era. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and that slowed the writing down by at least half. So that if I were to write four pages of the Aylesford Skull in any given day, it was a solid day's work. Um, doesn't seem like it should should be quite that complex, but for me, it it really was. Um, the word dirigible, for example, was very very new when the activities in the Aylesford Skull took place, and um, it was a little bit tricky to to use that word. A lot of words popped into being, I discovered two or three or four years after my book allegedly took place. And um, some words that I thought were Americanisms were not, and some words that I, I was sure were, were British uh, were in fact Americanisms. And so it was a lot of work. It was, you know, just me being anxious to get the language right, which in fact, when I was much younger, I wasn't quite as interested in. Well, I think that attention to detail, though, is is what makes the book so enjoyable and and flow so smoothly. Uh, but but the the reason I asked that is because I f- I felt like you'd been on those streets the way you described them. They they just came to life for me. Uh, the location specifically did. Well, thank you for saying that. I actually had not been on those streets. Um, I'm off to, to England for the World Fantasy Convention in Brighton, um, but that'll be my third trip since, I think my first trip to England was in 1975. Um, my second trip was in the early 2000s, and, and then this will be my third trip. Um, so virtually everything I know about London has come out of the the research books that I've got. Um and so it's tricky. I, I try very, very hard to, to get things right. And, you know, previously you were talking about how the, the book is a team effort. Um, I'm lucky to have an English publisher. So my editor and my agent and people who work for the publishing company are all can spot, for example, Americanisms, um, if they, if they manage to creep into, uh, to the, to the book, you know, early on, I discovered that People in England didn't use the term sidewalk. They used pavement. Suitcase turned out to be an Americanism. Odds and ends like that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Now, things that you wouldn't suspect. Uh, yeah, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought those <clears throat> either. Now, in contrast, because you also write a lot of contemporary fantasy as well. How much research do you do on that in contrast to your steampunk? Well, you know, quite a bit less because most of my contemporary fantasy is set in Southern California or Northern California, which are both places I'm just intimately familiar with having lived in California all my life. Um, when I, generally speaking, it's, it, I, then I, I'm probably reading books on natural history. I like um, desert settings and California chaparral, um, Northern California coastal settings. And I try to make them as authentic as I can make them. And in order to do that, um, <clears throat> I think it's necessary to uh, know what kind of critters live there and what sorts of plants grow and uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
So I read that as much for fun as uh, for any other reason, but it it does constitute research. Now and then, um, some of my books had historical elements, and um, I needed a little bit of research there. But by and large, not much much research. The writing contemporary California stuff is, in in that regard, much um, much easier. I'm much more likely to write. 12 pages in a day if my book is set in my own neighborhood than to write four pages a day that I'd, I'd write if it's set in a neighborhood in Kent in England, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. It does. Well, you know, speaking of which, authors work in so many different types of ways. Are you a planner where you outline everything and make extensive notes? Or are you a pantser, which is someone that flies by the seat of their pants and letting the book go wherever it will? That is a complicated question. Um, (laughs) Somehow, I've, since the very early days when I was writing my first fantasy novels for for, uh, Lester and Judy Lynn Delroy at Delray Books, um, I have wanted to make sure that I had a book to write before I accepted any money from um, a publisher. And consequently, I have always sold books on the basis of a, an outline that was 8 to 10 or 12 or 14 pages long, which meant that before I sold the book, I knew that I had a way into the book and a way out of the book and an idea of, of – um, the outlines tend to be very scenic – and kind of plot point scenes. And as a consequence, I could also picture the book and I had a sense of the tone of the book and et cetera, et cetera. Once I sold the book, and this was true of the Aylesford Skull also, which I sold to, to Titan Books, my first uh, book with, with Titan, which turns out to be a wonderful publishing company to work with. But there again, I wanted to make sure that they knew exactly what it was that they were, that they were buying into. Once I got the once I'm done with the outline, though, and the editor has approved it, I never look at it again because it's it's turned out inevitably that the best stuff that goes into my work uh, comes into my mind as I'm writing the book. Writing, I think, is the absolutely the sharpest, cleanest inspiration that a writer can have. Um, the language, I believe, is what generates ideas, and I don't think that you – and the language doesn't exist until you're actually writing um, as a consequence, once I start the book, any pre-planning um, that would be in my mind would end up being inhibiting the writing rather than than developing the writing. Um, so I, I don't look at the outline again. I simply I simply let it work, and it it always turns out that what I thought was going to be the plot isn't quite the plot, and that I continually make changes as the writing develops, and I have to go back and and revise earlier chapters so that my first chapter is liable to have been revised 40 times by the, by the time I'm done with, with the book. Wow. That's, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot yeah. of changing. That's a lot well, of revising. some of the revisions might, might not be major revisions, just uh, double checking to make sure that this or that element was set up just a little bit or, or that a character had said what I thought a, a character had said or to make sure that the sentences sound as well six months into the book as they did on the, you know, the first day I started writing, whatever it might happen to be. Gotcha. That's, that's fascinating. Um, is, 
can you tell us anything about what you're working on currently, or your current project? Is it? Do you have anything that you can share with us that uh, won't give away too much? Well, yeah, I I actually just turned in a novel to Subterranean Press. Actually, it's a, a long novella. Um, Subterranean Press published two such novellas over the last few years, um, illustrated by J.K. Potter, who's an absolutely brilliant sort of photo montage illustrator from New Orleans. This is the third in what will be a series of of uh, short novels that are sort of all companions. And uh, again, they, they involve Langdon St. Ives and uh, his crowd of oddball characters. And um, in those short novels, um, I've decided to let my character Jack Owlsby Langdon St. Ives' young friend do the narrating. So they're written in the first-person point of view. And Jack Owlsby has a sort of goofy way of seeing the world. The voice is just a little bit different, equally Victorian, I think. But um, they're much more likely <clears throat> to have uh, more of a sense of humor, I suppose, just because of, uh, of the, the nature of the narrator. The one I finished um, is one of my favorite of my steampunk efforts, actually. Very different uh, than the, the Aylesford skull, but it involves a gigantic sea creature, uh, the threatened devastation of London. Uh, there's some, there's some uh, <clears throat> piracy on the, the old Spanish main and a bunch of other stuff in it that sort of enlivens the book. There's a, a dead cow and some severed heads and heaven knows what all. Um, when does that come out, Jim? You know, I'm not quite sure. I think um, it may be out sometime late this year. I, this, it, it's not scheduled yet. Could be um, the following year. It usually takes about a, a year for a, a publishing company to get your book out. And I think I delivered it in January or February. So it's some distance away yet. But if um, if readers uh, – here's a shameless pitch. If readers read and enjoy The Aylesford Skull or my other two recent – steampunk books, um, which include The Affair of the Chalk Cliffs and um, a book called The Ebb Tide. If they like those, I think they would like this new one at least as well. I'm just going to predict. I'm not going to offer offer to return their money or anything like <laughs> no guarantees but well i i loved i loved the um the Aylesford skull so yeah i'm and and if you bring those characters back because there were some characters in that that i just fell in love with yeah well thank you that the nice thing about these novellas um in switching up the 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 viewpoint characters is that some of the peripheral characters in books like the Aylesford skulls can 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 have uh, more major parts. Um, the new one, which is called The Secret of the Ring of Stones, is um, features Tubby Frobisher and his goofy uncle Gilbert, actually, who were key players in the Aylesford Skull, but um, not quite as, as fundamentally key as Langdon St. Ives was. Right. Well, to kind of turn this thing around a little bit, we're going to take off in another direction. We've seen a lot of changes in the industry over the past couple of years. Do you feel the changes have impacted your own work? And if so, in what ways? And how do you feel about those changes? Well, this is another complex uh, question. One of the, the very nice things about getting into the field when I got into the field back in the, in the 1970s and 80s 
is that the field was still um, caught up in in that sort of um, new wave idea of the 60s and 70s that books could be eccentric and literary and uh, other things that made them kind of strange so that we could J.G. Ballard was writing very strange things. John Bruner, uh, Phil Dick, obviously, was writing some very strange things at at, uh, at that time. Um, so when I came up with early books like The Digging Leviathan, for example, which is set in Los Angeles in the 1950s and is a, I'm going to say, eccentric book, um, Ace Books had no problem with its eccentricities. I think the world is less fundamentally anxious for that sort of thing to occur today. Um, I think publishers, I think there's a much more uh, evident bottom line. Um, Publishing companies are very excited if they find a book um, that they can sell a, a zillion copies of. And sometimes they think that, and sometimes that excludes quirky books to a degree. On the other hand, there are plenty of small press publishers out there publishing elegant books who, like Subterranean Press, for example, or Chizine or Tachyon or any of a number of other uh, fine small presses, um, which are plenty quirky and plenty eccentric. So one can still publish those books. I just don't think that it's as easy to do it today as it once was. That being said, I'm not sure what other changes there are except that electronic media um, you know, new media of various sorts is supplanting old media at a fearsome rate of speed, which I think will change the future of writing. I hope uh, not to the extent that people forget about paper and ink, but. Um, I don't think they ever will because there is nothing better than the smell of an old book. I am in absolute agreement with that. I'm surrounded by books. I'll always be surrounded by books, ideally People who publish books will always uh, uh, have an interest in publishing something that I write. One nice thing, though, I have to say, um, is um, what we're doing right now. It, it dawned on me recently that that just a few years ago, the only way in the world that the public would know that there was a, a James P. Blaylock novel for sale would be to walk into a bookstore physically, look at the, sh- the, the science fiction fantasy books under B's to see if there was anything there. It was common enough to be reviewed in Publishers Weekly, let's say, or in Locus Magazine or Kirkus or the Library Journal. But I'm not quite sure that the public reads those magazines. Today, um, well, it, in regard to the Aylesford Skull, for example, um, I think I, I, in the past two or two and a half months, I've, I've written 30 or 35 blog interviews Um I, this is uh, an, a, yet another podcast. Tens of thousands of people will know that Blaylock has a book out there. I hope they all go out and buy it. I'm not certain that they will. But um, but that's a just a fundamentally huge change uh, in just in, in the last uh, few years. That's uh, entirely positive as far as I can see. Right. The Internet has really opened up so many avenues that were not – previously available and to see what social media has done and and how the internet spreads like a virus as they say you know it's it's kind of exciting i think yes it's very exciting and um people i'm convinced that that there are more people reading today than ever before that there's more printed material or it 
in some form uh, being read than ever before. And we hear that that ink and paper publishers are are having a difficult time of it. But I don't believe that the written word is having a difficult time of it, although these days it might be the spoken word as well as the written word. Um, I think the world is becoming increasingly more full of readers, and that can only be a good thing as far as I can see. Right. With the new electronic devices like the Kindle or other e-readers, it makes it so easy to download a book and read it and take it on the go and have so many books at your fingertips that I think that it has, you know, encouraged more readers. I believe it has, too. And um, it's fascinating to me just from a, a sort of a commercial standpoint that um, if one of my novels is available as an ebook for $4, I'll actually make more royalties on that $4 book than I would make if it were available as a hardcover for $24.95. And um, that's just an astonishing change, you know? The myth number is... And that means it's time for myth number, our word of the day. And in keeping with today's theme, of course, today's word is, I'm sure everybody can guess, steampunk. And that's just because I love the genre so much. Uh, I love the books. I love the movies. I love the styles and architecture and clothing. And just in general, it is a fun genre. I'm glad it is having a, a, a high peak at this point in time, and I hope that that peak stays for a long time and that it, people don't get bored with it, but I don't see that happening. I see a lot of excitement still in uh, costumes and things like that. Jim, what do you think? Well, I am exactly like you. I, I love the whole bunch of it. Um, I'm not a costume kind of a guy. In fact, um, my wife and I went off to SteamCon in Seattle a couple of years ago where I was writer guest of honor and there were 2000 people there, um, which is a wild thing in the first place. And I think my, my wife and I and another half dozen people were the only people at the convention who, who weren't dressed in costume. And I really <clears throat> admired the work that went into the costumes. I just thought everything was cool. The, the dealer's room was selling the fabulous uh, steampunk jewelry um, beautiful coats, whatever it might happen to be, oddball hats with goofy things all over the top. I love all of it. Absolutely. I am way too introverted to wear a costume of any sort. Um, so I'm probably not going to fall quite that deeply into, uh, into the whole culture, but, um, but yeah, it's wonderful. I, I'm hoping that it hasn't peaked. I'm hoping that it's uh, that we're just getting up to the top of a rise and we're going to look up and find another peak even higher, you know, overhead. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. We'll see. It's, I don't write in it, but I sure do love reading it. And I, I really I really like the style. In fact, I went and bought some boots last month that kind of have a, a steampunk flair to them. And uh, when Carl and I were in California last month, um, <laughs> I, I I wore them, but when I was in the store, I I asked the girl if she thought they were too young for me, <laughs> and she said, "Can you walk in them?" And I said, "Yeah." And she goes, "Then they're not too young." Okay. But, good. <laughs> yeah. but uh, Carl, those are kind of steampunk boots, weren't they? They were. They were adorable. They were really cute. So I, but I'm too. I was too chicken to like 
take the dress and the corset and some of the other stuff that I might have might have done when I was a little younger to do that. But uh, yeah, I, I wish I had the courage to just really go full steampunk because I'd I'd love it. I'd have I'd 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 be with those other people that were all dressed up, Jim. Well, you know, maybe someday I'll uh, I'll develop the courage to to be with those people too. I did when I was married. I wore what the uh, tuck store referred to as an Edwardian tuxedo. Um, I'm not sure how Edwardian it in fact was, and of course I had to give it back to the tux people. But that's as close as I've ever come to to dressing uh, in steampunk. Well, maybe you can dress steampunky when you have a dinner party. If you had a dinner party with any seven people, living, dead, or fictional, who would you include? Well, that one is uh, is a is a real good question. Um, I would include writers, and that is after I must say that um, my favorite people in the world actually are living, and they're pretty much members of my family. But we'll I won't I won't uh, get tiresome about that. Um, I think most of the writers I'd want to have dinner with are um, are in fact dead by now. Um, I would invite uh, Robert Louis Stevenson for sure. Um, and I would invite uh, Charles Dickens and Chekhov and G.K. Chesterton and Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and who am I leaving out? I'm leaving a lot of people out. Uh, Jules Verne, probably. Uh, That's H- seven. That's is that seven? You can have more. Did you want more? Well, I was going to throw in H.G. Wells, but he gets kind of tiresomely political sometimes. And so I'd probably leave him out. <laughs> uh, well, I think you've got a great group there. Yeah, yeah. I hope they would be, they they could be friendly with each other. And if not, it would make for an interesting party. That's for sure. I'd be yeah. a fly on the wall for that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm kind of um, I don't know. I'm always interested in knowing what elements of uh, writers' work came out of their lives and out of I don't know what they knew about the world, what they'd seen in the world. Um, my own writing is uh, tends very often to be just slightly autobiographical in certain ways. And um, I'm always wondering whether other writers were the same, you know, I'd like to ask all those people where they got their stuff, I suppose. Yeah. That, me too. That's, that's a great, that's a great question. What question do you never get asked in interviews? And you've been doing so many since the release of your latest book. I know, but what question does no one ever ask you that you wish they would? And what would, what would you answer? Well, I guess here's a question that nobody has asked me, although I've, I've uh, offered to discuss it voluntarily before. Um, and it relates to your business about whether or not writing gets done in a, in a enclosed room and is a solitary business or something more. Um, I believe that in certain ways I was probably destined to become a writer, but I don't know if the destiny would have come to pass if it hadn't been for my mother. And um, so the question that I would like to be asked is, would you be a writer if you had been left entirely to your own devices or were there other people in your life who brought about um, the possibility of being a writer? Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And what's your answer going to be? My answer is that there were two women in my life that maybe even three um, who are largely responsible for me 
writing what I've written uh, over the years. One was my mother who, um, who had a whole bunch of books and was quite happy to loan them to me so that by the time I was 10 years old, I was sneaking books out of her bookcases and reading them and putting them back. Um, she saw that, that I was a reader and my sister were a reader. So she hauled us down to, um, the library, the local library in Stanton, California. And, um, I can still remember her finding me where I was browsing through the shelves and she had a copy of, uh, Jules Verne. I don't know if it was, uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth or, um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but I, I seem to remember it was one or the other of those. It had a cool cover illustration and she said, you might like this. And I thought, yes, I might like that. Look at that submarine or whatever it was. And um, she sort of fed me Vern and Wells and uh, suggested I read Edgar Rice Burroughs. Meanwhile, making similar suggestions to my sister. My sister got involved in uh, Walter Farley in the Black Stallion books and in the, the nautical stories of a writer named Howard Pease. And uh, so my sister would come in and with a pile of black stallion books for me and she'd take my Jules Verne and scurry off. And, and, um, I think that that early, that my mother's suggesting to me that reading books for pleasure was a brilliant way to spend my time when I was 10 or 11 years old was what I think she was preparing me to become a writer without perhaps knowing that she was doing it. And certainly without me knowing that, that she was doing it. So I owe a heap to her and also to my wife, um, who is not listening now, but I wish she were so that, you know, she'd be happy. I was saying this, but from the, the time we were, we were first married, which is over 40 years ago to, uh, the present time, she's always, um, encouraged, uh, my writing and has never had any problem with, um, some of the slacker habits that go along with being a writer, you know, the tremendous amount of time spent uh, locked away in one study. Um, the fact that there were many years when um, she was the one putting bread on the table and I was off doing research at O'Hare's pub, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, I wouldn't say that without my wife or my mother, I wouldn't be a writer, but I certainly would not be the writer that I am. I simply wouldn't have had, I think the, the capacity or the encouragement to, to do what I've done because it's, you know, it's a great deal of work. And, and that means that there's a great deal of other sorts of work, which one can't do. And um, so anyway, that's, that's the question. And that's the answer. I love that. Me too. I think that's a great tribute. Everyone has their own personal beliefs, things a lot of people think about us that may or may not be true. Their own personal myth behaviors, if you will. What myth behavior do people believe about you that is absolutely not true? <laughs> um, I suppose I, that there are a number of friends of mine and family members who know that certain of my books are very close to home in terms of some of the activities of my protagonists. Um, and in fact, back in the 1980s, I wrote a book called The Last Coin that is set in Seal Beach, California. And um, the the protagonist of that book and I share some common thinking and even some common activities, I guess I would say. Um, he's pretty crazy and I don't think I'm quite that crazy, <laughs> but um, at one point, uh, this is something that, that 
I actually did. I one time back in those days, I opened up the kitchen cupboard and reached in to pull down a glass tumbler to get a drink of water. And I realized that I couldn't stand those glass tumblers. We'd gotten them as a wedding gift many, many years before. And, um, and I've just, I had just never liked them. Uh, we'd gotten eight and there were six left and I counted the years and I thought, gee whiz, that means one is breaking at the, the rate of about once every eight or 10 years. And I calculated that when I was dead and gone, those there would still be a couple of those glasses in the cupboard. And that bothered me a little bit because I really couldn't stand them. And the idea that they were going to outlive me just was not right. It wasn't good. And, um, I was writing the last coin at the time and I had my, my main character find those very tumblers in his cabinet. And he decided to take it upon himself to murder the glasses um, surreptitiously in the middle of the night. And he takes them out in the backyard and he's breaking them up when the light goes on and his wife says, what are you doing, dear? And um, he has to make up some fabulous lies in order to get out from under the fact that he's, that he's murdering these glasses because he's, this idiot idea has come into his head. Vicky somehow or another forgot that we ultimately sold those glasses at a garage sale. And I think to this day believes that that I had committed this rash act and taken the, the glasses out in the backyard and destroyed them. And in fact, um, back in the early 90s, there were a bunch of folks over the house, including Tim Powers. And I happened to be back in my study finding a book. And Tim and my wife were in the – my wife Vicky were in the, the kitchen – and Tim said, uh, he said, Vicky, quick, show me those glasses that Blaylock was destroying out in the backyard. Tim, having assumed that all of the goofy behavior of my, uh, of my main character in that book, I had, had been my own goofy behavior. And I, of course, protested that I had not destroyed those glasses, that we had sold them at a garage sale. And it was, it was kind of like one of those Chinese finger puzzles where the more you try to <laughs> jerk your fingers out, the, the harder it becomes. Um, so yeah, the, the myth is that, uh, I somehow am much more like my characters and guilty of their atrocities, um, than, than I actually am. So you did not murder no. the glasses. No, I did not. And I did not chop up the garden hose with the pruning shears. <laughs> um, I did not murder a tube of toothpaste, which squirted out the wrong end there and tack it to the wall as a, as sort of a. I don't know, warning to other toothpaste tubes. I, I didn't do any of those things, but the, yeah, the more I protest though, the, the more it's, it seems quite likely that, you know, I did. Oh, that's great. That's great. That was, that was a fabulous answer. That was just a fabulous answer. Okay. Now, now you gotta, now you gotta tell us though, what myth behavior do people believe about you? That really is true. <clears throat> well, this one is tough. I shouldn't be saying this uh, publicly. Shouldn't be saying this publicly, but it's got to be um, good. <laughs> well, no, I'm not. I don't know how good it is, but um, we've had some interesting experiences over the years with strange paranormal occurrences, and um, I think when I talk about ghosts that I've known and loved, or or uh, I don't know paperweights that have floated around the house and things like that. People at first think that I must be kidding, um, which means I shouldn't be talking about those things at all. But I think slowly but surely it dawns on them that I'm not, in fact, kidding. And um, in fact, the 
the one story, short story that I wrote that is virtually entirely autobiographical, except the couple in the story has a, a daughter rather than uh, two sons, um, was a short story called The Other Side, which involved um, a guy who has some paranormal experiences and then frightened, works real hard to figure out what they mean, why they occurred, if they occurred, et cetera, et cetera, and ends up just hopelessly having to buy into them. That was the only the only story that I've ever written that was, as I say, almost entirely autobiographical. So people suspect that I that that I'm a a believer in these sorts of things, and I will say that I am, but I'm going to call myself a skeptical believer. Oh, I like that. I, I like, I like that, that term. Too. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's the end of our show. Jim, thank you so much for being our guest. We would love it if you would share your social media or website or or however you want to share um, that people can can look you up and email you or however you want them to contact you. Okay, I I would love to do that. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, I'm going to plug a couple of books too um, while Please I'm at do. it. Absolutely. Um, Okay. Um, my website is uh, quite simple. It's simply jamespblaylock.com. Um, very easy to find and easy to navigate. Um, there's a, It's loaded up with a, a number of things that I've written and published over the years um, that, that readers might, uh, might enjoy reading. Um, there's information about my books and all of the usual stuff you'd, you'd find on the website. There's also a second James P. Blaylock website called cybertooth.com and that's with a sy not a c uh cybertooth.com which has been up for years and years and years and in fact was put up by um some blaylock readers um a guy named chris paul actually up in uh canada and um in the days before i knew what a website was one of my students at chapman university said oh i was looking at your website it's pretty cool and i said what's a website and um then I learned what a website was and I found it and indeed it was pretty cool. So there's two sources for Blaylock information, I suppose. Also, I want to point out that um, I recently published via Subterranean Press a um, a young adult novel, which reviewers have suggested has some steampunk tropes to it. Um, it's set, however, it's a contemporary story uh, set in uh, up in Fort Bragg, California. And um, it's got some some very nice reviews, and it's uh, available out there as a as an audio book and um, electronically and in a number of other ways. So, if readers are interested in that, it has a um, bears a small relationship to to the Digging Leviathan, uh, my third novel, which I wrote back in the early 1980s. Uh, so, if if there are readers out there who read that and like that world and those characters, they might get a kick out of out of this young adult novel, which is titled. And hold on, uh, here it comes, Zuglodon, The True Adventures of Kathleen Perkins' Cryptozoologist. Ooh, that's a yep. great title. Zuglodon with a Z-E-U, which it's a wacky old dinosaur that was famous for biting things in half in the ocean. Great title. Thanks. Thank you again for being our guest. I, You have just been delightful. It has been off, an awful lot of fun chatting with you again and i appreciate that you took the time to do this today you've given us some great information 
And I, I want to wish you just personally the very, very best of luck for continued success because you, you are a fabulous writer and, and I think you should like have your name like emblazoned in lights out there somewhere. Well, so, I hope it, hope it will be someday. <laughs> as, as I said at the, at the beginning of this year, may you go viral. Well, and, thank you very much. And and that's that's the nicest thing I think I can wish a, an, another writer is is to go viral. Yeah, that uh, that certainly is. Well, you know, it was really a pleasure to be on here today. I, I really enjoyed uh, chatting, and um, so thanks a lot. And thank you. Remember, everyone can go to MythBehaving.com for more information on James P. Blaylock and a link to his books. You can also read his bio and find links to his social media. And don't forget that you can download this episode on iTunes or listen right on the MythBehaving.com website. Please take a moment to leave a positive review on iTunes. That's how we move up the iTunes ladder. And you can subscribe to us on iTunes as well. Thanks for tuning in to MythBehaving. We'll see you again next time. I'm Carla. And I'm Mare. And we are MythBehaving, where reality meets fantasy. See you soon.